If you uh, have a Bible or are close to one, would you open it now to the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians as we continue a summer series called Gospel Reset. Um, one of the things, uh, I am no nerd, no techno genius. I basically know how to turn it off and on. And so when I run into a problem on the various devices I use, like laptops, phones, and computers, my knee-jerk reaction is to turn it off and turn it back on. And so uh, often that solves a, a, a world of hurt and trouble, just doing that. And if I reach out and ask somebody, that's usually the first question they ask me. Did you turn it off? Did you turn it on? Uh, we're not interested in turning anybody off today. We're interested in seeing you be turned on to the truth of God's Word as the Holy Spirit brings it to bear upon our experiences. Uh, before I read the Scripture, I wanted to read the Jonathan Edwards uh, quote, which is really filtered through the pen of Tim Keller, he said, Jonathan Edwards taught that the root of all human action is what he called the affections. By affections, he meant something deeper than feelings. He saw them as the fundamental loves and hates of the whole person. The affections in the long run are the source waters of our feelings and behavior. Therefore, it is the work of the Spirit to take the truths of the gospel and slowly burn them into the roots of our souls, shaping the affections so that the Lord's beauty and love become more precious to us than any alternative. By the way, that's a lot easier than reading Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> but that's what Jonathan Edwards meant by spiritual affections. There's something deeper uh, than just... Feeling. Feeling's good. Nothing wrong with feeling. But there is more to it than that. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul saying to the Galatians, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions and as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that your Holy Spirit, who inspired this portion of your word as well as all of your word would give us the sense of what is intended for us to know through this passage. We pray that he would turn the lights on for us, that we would begin to see the truth and not only see it, but welcome it. We ask that you soften our hearts and make us teachable because we're anything but. And we pray that because of that and because we've heard your word today, 
we'll be different people when we leave here and it will be to your glory and to your glory alone and we pray in Christ's name amen I once told you that if I was ever stranded on a desert island and could only have one chapter in the Bible it would be Romans chapter 8 but right behind it stands Galatians 4 1 through 7 the doctrine of adoption it's it's so important in uh, our Christian life to be able to have a good understanding of this because it's such a liberating and profoundly moving truth and so what's going on in the book of Galatians we need to sort of orient ourselves to the context of what the Apostle has been talking about and he has been demonstrating clearly uh, throughout chapter 3 that the Mosaic law uh, and its codes were not a contradiction to the promise of to Abraham of salvation by grace rather the law shows us God's holiness and need to be righteous but it also uh, shows us our sinfulness and inability to be righteous and so that is the quandary in which we find ourselves uh, John Stott several years ago wrote in his work on Galatians the following after God gave the promise to Abraham he gave the law to Moses why he had to make things worse before he could make them better the law exposed sin provoked sin condemned sin the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath sinful, rebellious, self-righteous, guilty, under the judgment of God, and utterly helpless to save himself. One of the things that I often tell people is the Bible does not flatter human nature. Don't read it if you want to feel good about yourself as you are. If you want to feel good about who you are in Christ, read the Bible. But the Bible is like a mirror, and the mirror reflects back to us in the law portions what God commands to us who we really are and what we're like apart from him and it shows us our flesh the fallen dimension of our nature and the first knee-jerk reaction of any person who's exposed to the law of God is to say well I got to try to do better I've got to knuckle down I got to root hog or die I, I've got to do something about this because the law exposes it reveals and it's not pretty what you see and the law must still be allowed to do its God-given work today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment because we don't want to run people away. But we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel, otherwise the gospel loses its power and its punch and its meaning. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical revelation. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the dark, inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to glisten and appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Now, the wonderful truth about that is, once that happens for you, the gospel becomes something precious to you it becomes very very good news but it's never good news 
I mean, it's helpful. It makes me feel better. But it's never really good news until first I taste and see and experience the bad news. And the bad news is, ladies and gentlemen, might as well face it, we're addicted to law. We just are. I was going to sing that, but I backed out. <laughs> or I'll let Robert Palmer sing all that for me. But we're addicted to law. That is the nature of the case with fallen humanity is we want to save ourselves. We want to fix ourselves. We want to take it upon ourselves. Whether you're a Christian and believe the Bible or whether you're a person who rejects the Bible and you reject Christ and you have your own law and your own standards and your own principles, by obeying either one, you will never save yourself. You can't do it. It is utterly foolish to try. And so many Christians testify that when they first became aware of their need for God, they went through a time of immaturity in which they became extremely religious. They diligently seek to amend their lives and do religious duties in an effort to clean up their lives. They make the tearful surrenders to God at church services. They give their lives to Jesus and ask them in Him into their hearts. But so often they are only just resolving to be very good and very religious, hoping that this will procure the flavor, a favor and blessing of God. In this stage, they tend to have a lot of emotional ups and downs, kind of like children, feeling good when they make spiritual uh, ad, uh, advance and commitment and being despondent when they fail to keep a promise that they have made to God. They feel a great deal of anxiety and unrest. They are, as Paul says here, like children under a tutor. They're on their way to discovering God in the gospel, but they're not there yet. And so Paul tells us in this passage some wonderful, helpful truth but first, he describes for us in the first three verses, and we sort of looked at these in the beginning, but we're going to look at them a little bit more. In verses 1 through 3, Paul refers to the function of guardians and tutors in the lives of Roman children. They cared for the child in his father's name, yet kept him, that is the child, away from intimate dealings with his father. Paul uses this illustration to show how the law both points us toward God by showing us our sin and our need, yet it separates us from God. By showing us our sin and our need, it separates us and it makes us feel remote from him by showing us our sinfulness. Jesus makes us, I mean, uh, excuse me, the law, law makes us feel remote from God. In verses 4 Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul brings out a new aspect of the children's illustration. The child is an heir of great fortune and wonderful estate. In principle, the child is wealthy and powerful. In practice, he is no more than a slave. Put another way, wealth that was his by promise is not yet his by experience. He is no different than a slave. He must come of age in order to appropriate what was promised. And this process of coming of age is a well-defined process. Under guardianship, 
until the age of 14 and then under trustees until the age of 25. Not until then uh, uh, does he have independence and control. The uh, Roman concept of understanding uh, the child heir as a minor under guardians uh, is well spoken of by uh, Lloyd Douglas in The Robe. A Roman child became an adult at a, at a sacred family festival known as the Liberalia, held annually on the 17th of March. At this time, the child was formally adopted by the father as his acknowledged son and heir and received the toga virilis in place of the toga protexta, which he had previously worn. A sense of the moving nature uh, can be gleaned uh, as you read in Roman history, but how does that illustrate the condition of a person who's under the law? Paul begins the illustration, what I am saying at, and this means that the illustration refers to all that Paul has been saying in chapter 3 about the incompleteness of the Mosaic law. But it also sets up what he's going to say afterward is how the Galatians are losing their freedom. freedom. And so what Paul is going to do here is simply brilliant, as he is simply brilliant, is he's going to show us from the past that the Mosaic era, the people of God, had spiritual freedom promised to them in their covenant with God that was made at Mount Sinai. But they had yet come to appropriate and experience it. And God said to and through Moses, you will be my people and I will be your God. But with a few exceptions, people under the Mosaic Covenant never experience intimacy and freedom because the means and assurance of forgiveness was vague and general. But on a second level, this is a picture of all humanity, all human beings. The cryptic reference in chapter 4 verse 3 says, So also, referring to the illustration of being a slave, when we were children, we were un in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And so, since most of the pre-Christian Galatians were not Jews under the Mosaic Law, Paul is saying something astounding here. He is saying that all human beings are spiritual slaves before coming to Christ. They are, in a sense, hooper nomos, that is, under the law. Even if they've never heard of the Bible or never heard of Moses or the people of Israel. We are all desperately trying to live up to some kind of standard to find our identity, to build our status, to, do, to project who we really are. Find authenticity and everything else. We're desperately trying to do that, and we're anxious and burdened, and so our relationship with God is remote and probably non-existent. On a third level, though, this is a picture of how Christians may come to some degree to fail to experience the freedom and joy of their salvation. Just as under Moses, the people's relationship to God was somewhat remote and burdensome, so Christians can fail to realize the intimacy and freedom of the gospel. They may continue in some ways to live like slaves rather than adopted sons. They ad adopt what I will talk about next week called the orphan mindset. 
And so Paul is here clearly saying, setting the table for the best good news you will ever hear. God did two basic things to bring us into the reality of adoption and the freedom it entails. The two basic things he did are found in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, what is the fullness of time? It's uh, pleroma chronos in the original language. The fullness of time was on God's timetable, not ours, in which he decided to send his son. The idea of sending his son means his son was already existing, right? His son is the second person of the Trinity. His son is very God of very God. But he sent him in the incarnation to be born of a woman. Jesus came and was born of a woman uh, the virginal conception of Mary is certainly pointed to here. And the reality of that is there is the uniting of uh, the Son of God with human flesh in the womb of Mary. But the important thing that Paul brings out here in this verse is that he was born of a woman means he was born under the condition of obligation to fulfill the law. The humanity of Jesus must fulfill God's law. He is obligated to do so. And so when God was ready and prepared, he did two things. He sent his son to accomplish two things. And the first one is to redeem those under the law, which is everybody, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, uh, elder brother, prodigal son, everyone. And the whole universe is under the obligation to obey the law, removing all liability, penalty, and death. For Paul, under the law is a loaded term. It connotes first, under it legally. We are obligated to render 100% perfect, perpetual, personal obedience, or we're lost forever. You know, sometimes I remember talking to, sharing the gospel with a guy, and, uh, he, you know, he told me he thought he was a Christian. I said, why? And he said, well, I was born in America. I thought, all right, yeah, I get it. And I said, but that doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car. So uh, what makes you a Christian? He said, well, I was born in America. And he said, number two, I have never killed anybody. And I said, well, that's good. I said, but uh, that doesn't make you a Christian either because there are people who are Christians who did that. Uh, Dave McGuire mentioned uh, David. He didn't do it personally, but he had it done. Uh, but the point being this, to be a Christian is far more than obeying the law. I always looked at the Ten Commandments like ten links in a chain holding a boat to a dock. How many of those links of the chain chain have to break in order for the boat to float away from the dock. Only one. Only one offense. Ladies and gentlemen, our sins are so numerous. They're more than the stars in the heaven. They're more than the grains of sand upon the earth. We are in a terrible fix and we can't get our way out of it. And the gospel will mean nothing to you till you see that about yourself. 
And until you know that existentially, till it absolutely grabs you. I, I know I'm a far worse sinner now than I did before I met Jesus. Uh, if I had known then, I would have run the other way faster. But Paul understood that we're under, we're legally obligated, or we are lost every command of God. We are responsible to obey. But we're not only under it legally, we're under it spiritually, in that our hearts are helplessly fixated on trying to fulfill it in order to win God's favor or somebody else. It's a burden. It's an insatiable standard. It's impossible to satisfy. So in a sense, we belong to the law. We are under it. It masters us. Paul says Jesus was born of a woman. He came as a real human being, but immediately adds on born under law. The reason Paul breaks up the incarnation here, or brings up the incarnation here, is to assert that he was born as all human beings are, into a state of obligation to God's law. But Jesus completely redeems those under the law. He tells us that in Galatians 3.13. And to redeem means to release a slave from his or her master and uh, owner and by paying the slave's full price. Here the slave master is clearly the law. And by paying the slaves full price, uh, Jesus releases us from it as a slave is released from a master who is purchased. Jesus pays our full price to whom? To the law, to our obligation to the law. The law's demands are on all of us. This means that Jesus completely fulfills all the demands of the law of God upon us, anything and everything that we owe has been fulfilled by Jesus and there is nothing left to pay. I remember growing up in church we sang that song, Jesus Paid It All. And I kept wondering, even as a little child, well, who did he pay it to? I mean, who did he buy us back from? And Paul clearly says here, it's law and the obligation that the law has over us. No flesh will ever be justified by keeping the law. The purpose of the law was never given to us to provide a road map or a path by which we may climb or strive or meet to find God and his approval. The law was never intended to do that. What the law was intended to do is drive you to the end of your insanity of trying to right yourself with God and trying to deliver your own self and redeem your own self and cause you to cry out and run to Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. That may be a revelation for some of you because you're still trying to keep it. Now, after we come to Christ, we have a whole new relationship to the law. The law before has condemnation and power in it and it's something we can't do. After we come to Jesus, the Spirit enables us to walk in a way that is consistent with the law, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves, though never perfectly. And so the first thing Jesus did is that there's nothing left for those of us who trust in Him to pay. But second, as a result, Jesus procures for us the full rights of sonship. Literally, the sonship. It's a legal term. 
and it refers to the Greco-Roman legal process in which a childless wealthy couple or man could take one of his servants and adopt him and when this occurred he ceased to be a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate and outside in the world as a son and an heir. Remarkable metaphor. Though by right and nature he is the slave without a relationship with the father, he is now recipient of the status of a son. Now, how are these two things the same? Freedom from liability, number one, and rights as sons the same. They are two sides of the same coin. If you realize how it was accomplished with our record being legally transferred to Jesus and his to us in the Old Testament when they would offer a sacrifice, the priest would take his hands and lay it upon the head of that lamb or ram or bull or whatever they're sacrificing, and he is transferring as a mediator, as a priest, the sins of the people upon the head of the sacrifice, and the sacrifice would die in the place of those whose sins were laid upon it. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul tells us, by becoming a curse. He received the curse of the law on our behalf. He accomplished that in total. And uh, in him and in the doctrine of sonship, we see that these things come together. In order to remove our legal status as sinners deserving condemnation, he gave us a legal status as sons deserving great wealth and honor. They come together in and through him, only together the whole picture of the way Christ saves every person. As I've told you before, about half of my Christian life, I was only half saved by grace. I understood that Jesus died for my sins, and I was grateful for that. And I was glad that I was not condemned for my sins, and I was glad that he went to the cross, bearing in his body my sins, suffering the just punishment of God on my behalf. But when it came to me being righteous before God, I thought that was something I had to do. I thought that now that Jesus has died for me, I express my gratitude by keeping the law, and therefore God's approval is still in doubt. My adoption is still in doubt. And so I lived under the tyranny of a conscience that constantly said to me, God must be disgusted with you, son. I felt like, you know, I'd keep doing the same sins over and over and over again, and uh, I would hear preaching on sin, and I would start squirming in my seat, and I'd start wondering, well, maybe this is not really real for me. Maybe I don't really understand. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. And just wicked things would come up in my heart and my life. And I remember just striving and striving and striving until one day I heard the gospel in its fullness for the first time. And that first time is, not only did Jesus take my sin upon me, but because now I'm an adopted son and heir, he has given me all rights and privileges of sonship. I now am, by union with Christ, believing into him, organically connected to him by faith, God looks upon me as a son, little s, not the son, capital S, will never be deity. Anybody that ever tells you that, 
we'll sell you lakefront property or oceanfront property in Kansas someday. That's wrong. We will never be God. But we are adopted sons, and so Jesus came and took the obligation of the law for us and covenantally obeyed it fully, perfectly, completely, and then transfers as my sin is transferred to him, he who knew no sin became sin for me, so that I might become what? The righteousness of God. God takes my resume and gives it to Jesus, and he takes Jesus' resume and gives it to me, and I'm an adopted son of God. And what a privilege, what a joy. And then I began to walk around with not my head looking down and my shoulders bearing the weight of the world. I could hold my head up high, not because of anything I've done. I only have shame. But because of what Jesus has done. And so therefore, I have been taken from the zenith, the nadir of absolute failure and hopelessness, and placed in a position of the greatest position of wealth anyone in the universe could ever have, simply by looking outside of myself and by faith, velcroing, as it were, myself to Christ. Velcroing to Him. So these two things, freedom from the liability of sin, righteousness, that is His, the transfer of our sins off of ourselves, but a transfer on us of His rights and privileges. And we tend to think that only Christ has only pardoned us and removed our legal liability when we do not realize that. We're only half saved by grace. We can get pardoned, but now we have to live a good life to earn and maintain God's level of approval. But this text shows us not only did Christ remove the curse we deserved, but he gives us the blessings he deserved. One of my favorite preachers said, God took out of his hide what he should have taken out of your hide. He bore the wrath of God on my behalf. He suffered an infinity of the outpouring of God's wrath on my behalf. He took my sin. And so, unless I remember that, you know, and, and another remarkable thing, you know, you can be a judge in a court. And let's say they bring before you someone who is worthy of death, worthy of the death penalty, and you say, I'm going to pardon you and release you from death row. And if that was to happen to you or I, we would be free. But Jesus does something else. He not only takes us off death row, as it were, he gives us the Congressional Medal of Honor, for heaven's sakes. And it's all His doing. We are welcomed as heroes as if we had accomplished extraordinary deeds. And unless we remember that, we will always be anxious and despairing. When we sin or we fail, uh, and, and we think our, our slate is wiped clean, but now God's approval and acceptance are based upon our own record. That's not the case. When a son becomes an heir, that inheritance is guaranteed. It's not a prize to be won. It's a gift given through him. But that's only half the sermon. But the second half won't be as long, I promise you. Because not only did God send forth his son, but look at verse 6. He sent forth the Holy Spirit. 
And so what the Holy Spirit has to do, Jesus has to do with all the forensic, all the legal, all the justification, all the imputation of sin to him and righteousness to us. But how do I know that? How does that become reality in my experience? How does that touch me? It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take Jesus, who he is, and what he's done, and make it real to me. And without that work, then that's, you know, well, Jesus is a good guy, and I appreciate it, and all that. But until we see it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't really, the penny doesn't drop. Uh, we don't get it. We don't even get that we don't get it. But verse 6 tells us that God sent the Son. The Son's purpose was to secure, secure for us legal status, our sonship. But the, con, uh, the, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of sonship. And this is not like the work of the Son. The work of the Son brings us an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel it or taste it or not. But this work of the Spirit is not like that at all. The Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience. And what are the marks and characteristics of it? Well, if you keep reading the verse, first the Spirit leads us to call out Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a diminutive. It's an Aramaic term. And Abba is very similar to what we would call uh, a, a dear a uh, patriarch or relative of ours or a father, we would call him daddy or papa. It's a term of closeness, a term of intimacy, a term, you know, when Jesus prayed, he prayed Abba Father. And that upset the religious people because they thought it was a little too personal and a little too intimate for him to be doing because they didn't know who he was. But secondly, when we become believers and the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ and the truth of the gospel to our hearts, we call out Abba Father, Krasdan in the original, a very strong word that means a rending, loud cry. It refers to deep and profound passion and feeling. Second, calls out refers to our prayer life. Just as a child does not prepare speeches to present to his parents, unless you're trying to get off of some offense, so Christians experiencing the work of the Spirit find a great spontaneity and reality of prayer. Prayer is no longer mechanical or formal, but filled with warmth, passion, and freedom. I remember before I knew Christ, and I would pray, and it was only under extreme conditions, you know, like a foxhole, when I would pray, you know, if I had a big football game coming up, you know, I, I would go down and on Thursday night I'd say, Lord, help me live through this one. Uh, I don't I used to run the ball like 30-something times a game. Now think about that. Unless I'm scoring touchdowns, somebody's tackling me. And if they're tackling me, what are they doing? They're hitting me. And if they're hitting me, what does that make me? Sore. So I can remember praying on Friday nights that, or Thursday nights before Friday night football that we would win the game. And, uh, you know, I would promise the Lord that I would stop doing this and that if we could just win this game. That's not the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about here. It's not a quid pro quo negotiation. It is a desire to be with your Father. You want to talk to Him. You desire to talk to Him. It's spontaneous. It, there's nothing wrong with written and formal prayers. They're fine. 
But I'm a little bit suspicious of somebody that doesn't have any spontaneity in their prayer life. A personal, intimate uh, knowledge of their Redeemer. And so the prayer life uh, just jumps off the pages. Third, we call out. There's a sense of God's presence. Just as a child will call out automatically to a nearby daddy when there's a problem or a question, so Christians experiencing this work of the Spirit feel the remarkable reality of nearness to God. God is real. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes you aware of the real presence of God. And then fourth, Abba is a baby talk word, as I told you earlier, meaning Papa or Daddy, and it signifies a confidence of love and assurance and welcome. Just as a young child simply assumes that a parent loves them and is there for them and never doubts it, the security and openness of Daddy's arms is attractive. So Christians can have an overwhelming boldness and certainty that God loves us passionately and endlessly, as it were. The work of the Son is done externally to us all. It is something that we can have without feelings, but the work of the Spirit is done inside of us. And it consists in being completely moved emotionally as well as intellectually by the love of the Father. The work of the Son and the Spirit should never be separated or divorced, nor made to obscure the either one of the other. The fullness of the Spirit is experienced as we meditate on the love of the Son and the gifts of the Son are enjoyed as we look at the Spirit to guide us. And so not only did God do and plan from eternity all these wonderful things that Christ the Messiah came to accomplish, but He also brought it to our hearts. He brought it to our hearts. He made it personal and real. And, uh, you know, as Jonathan Edwards would say, in the realm of the affections. But finally, and I'm going to short this a little bit and give you a lot more of it next Sunday, I want to talk about the privileges of sonship. What are the privileges? What are the rights of sonship? We have seen we have intimacy of relationship but we also have authority over possessions. Sonship means that each of us are an heir. As I told you last week, I am a male, but I am the bride of Christ. If you are a female here, and you're a believer in Christ, you're not a daughter of God, you are a son of God, because the rights and privileges of sonship are extended now to all, not just male. And so you are a son, and you may not feel like calling yourself that, and I'm not going to worry about it. But the only reason a servant would be adopted as a son would be because the father had no heir. So the person in Paul's illustration has legal title to all of the father's estate because he's being treated as an only son. So for a child of God, there is confidence and boldness every day. We don't walk in fear of anyone or anything, our Father owns the whole place. God will honor us as He honors His one and only Son. We live with our heads held high. Our sonship removes the fear of missing fulfillment or losing approval, and which is 
at the root of so much of our disobedience. But there's a guaranteed sharing of God's glory in the future. The astounding bottom line of sonship is that God now treats us as if we had done everything Jesus had done. We are treated as if we are only sons, like Jesus. Jesus himself said that as he prayed for his people in John 17 when he said, Father, let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. As I said a while ago, you could be a judge and you could... Um, find a person not guilty you could uh, remove their sentence but the only judge that does that is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ if I was a judge and I forgave the sentence of someone who committed murder I wouldn't take them home to live with me I wouldn't do it neither would you but God God takes us home to live with him home to know his love he adopts us and puts us in his family now I grew up in the south the most important two questions you can ever ask someone when you meet them is who is your daddy and what did he do what does he do who's your daddy and what does he do right away you're going to give away whether you're in or out right away you're going to give away what kind of status you have or what kind of social strata you belong to now I, I don't see that as much around here but I did growing up who's your daddy well I'll tell you who my daddy is now I'll tell you who my papa is now it's the God who spoke the whole universe into existence it's the God whose love transcends anybody in this room's ability to grasp it it's a God who is for me and if God is for me who can be against me who and it gives you a sense not of a, a fleshly confidence that I can take anybody. But rather it gives you a confidence that my father can take anybody. And that my life is in his hands. That he has numbered my days. That I have an appointment with death. And I can rest in that. Uh, as Woody Allen used to say, he said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I kind of share that. But in reality, I know that the moment life is over, I'm going to be in the presence of a God who's smiling at me, <laughs> who's approving of me. And I have to tell you, that deconstructs a lot of nasty stuff in your life. The astonishing bottom line of this whole truth is that God treats us as if we are only sons. And so, because Jesus Christ has accomplished what he has accomplished and the Holy Spirit has brought it to bear upon our hearts we now have a secure relationship that will last for eternity when I was a young pastor and trying to read everything I could get my hands on so I when I showed up at church I'd have something to say I was reading a Puritan one day and he said think of eternity this way said so think of an eternity of where a bird flies to a beach picks up one grain of sand and takes it and drops it in the Grand Canyon 
Now, he didn't say Grand Canyon, but that's where I'm saying. By the time that bird empties all the sand off of all the beaches in the entire um, globe, eternity will just be starting. It's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Where will you be? Are you in Christ? Are you in league with yourself? The greatest thing you can ever do is look outside of yourself. It, that's why Jesus said it's like the faith of a child. It's a dependency. And we all want to do it ourselves. We all want to make a name for ourselves. We're all Tower of Babel builders. But simply coming to the end of yourself and saying, I count everything but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of everything and being found in him as righteous as Jesus is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the gospel is counterintuitive. It just doesn't click with us sometimes because it seems so very um, too good to be true. And most of us have been conned before. Most of us see scams every day on our phones and online. And just about everywhere you go, people are always running a scam. But this is no scam. This is truth. This is the reality of our Redeemer who's faithful and true. Now, Father, I pray you'd bring this to bear upon our lives and upon our hearts and that because we've heard this, we will be people who are driven by a love for you that we've never known before. And this, Lord, we pray. And as we take the offering today, may we give us people who have gratitude and love for you and give accordingly, cheerfully, because we know you approve of that. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.